Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Luke 18, which is where we'll be at this morning. Luke 18, you can turn to verse 9. The Bible says this about people who say in their own heart there is no God. It says that they are a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So they're not wise. They're not progressive. They are dangerously silly, right? It's a dangerous level of foolishness. And, and we can agree with the Bible with confidence this morning about this, not just because it's God's word, although that is enough, uh, but because we can see the logic of it, right? You live in a world, you live on the earth. There must be an earth maker. My daughter is going to be three years old in just a couple of weeks, and this is logic she is able to use, right? She knows that if there is a drawing laying on the kitchen table, as there often is when you have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old boy in the house, she knows this was drawn by somebody, right? And she even at three can look at it and go, probably not mom or dad. You know, this looks like a a Beckett creation, right? This looks like an Everett creation. So uh, she is able to to do that even at three, to look at a drawing and go, there's a drawing, there must be a drawing maker, right? Uh, Someone colored this. Uh, The color didn't just appear randomly. And so if little children can use that, uh, that, that logic, okay, then certainly adults can use that logic. And so it is foolish to say there is no God when you can look at the world and know there is creation, there must be a creator. Romans 1.19 says God, ex- God has made this plain in his creation, his existence, that you can look at the world around us, you can see creation, and the attributes of God are reflected by creation itself. We can look at the world and know there is a creator. And so the question then becomes, how are we made right with him? How do we know him? How do we even know if we need to be made right with him? If he definitely exists, though, then we should want to know who he is, and we should want to know what he requires of us. So you can go to Genesis 1 and 2 and see that in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first two people are created in the image of God, and they are given a law. And the law is, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And so God gave breath to them in their lungs. He gave them the institution of marriage. He gave them every other tree in the garden. He gave them creation. All of this was to show his love for them and so that they would in turn glorify him and worship him. And he wanted love back. He wanted that worship back. And that's why he gave them the law, right? He gave them this this law to not eat from this tree because he wanted them to demonstrate love back in, in his direction. But they failed. They broke the one law that he gave and sin entered the world and brought death with it. Death is always the dancing partner of sin. And so now as human beings who recognize that there is a creator and want to be made right with God, want to know how can we know God, we have a problem with God. And that problem is sin. And that problem is the inability to return love to him in the way that he deserves. To miss the mark at every level. How are we going to be made right with God? How is this problem going to be fixed? Well, right away we get hints to the answer. 
God speaks to the serpent who deceived Eve and says this in Genesis 3, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then listen to this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be a war between Eve's children and Satan, particularly one of Eve's children and Satan. And this one child is going to bruise the head of the enemy. He's going to stomp on the head of the serpent, and Satan will bruise his heel. So an offspring is coming from Eve who is going to step on the head of the deceiver. And then, a few verses later, God kills. But he doesn't kill who you might expect him to kill. He had told Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree, you will surely, you're going to die. So you might think, well, it's, it's their time. But no, he, he has just actually um, told them the way their life is going to look. And so you can see that so that his grace may abound, he is going to actually push the death sentence out. They will die, but they're not going to die right away. Someone else dies. Genesis 3, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, if their clothes came from skins, that means that something died in order for its, sin, its uh, skin to be given up. And so the, the, the covering of Adam and Eve's shame, that is a mission that God himself took on, Right? He is the one that prepared the skins and gave them to them so that they could cover up their shame. So the answer to Adam and Eve's sin was not for them to try to make up for it in words. It certainly wasn't for Adam to go hide in the bushes. It wasn't for them to try to make up for it in their actions. Their own attempts to cover their own sin was feeble, right? They sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths to cover up their shame. God sees right through it, as he does with all of our schemes to try to cover up our sin and our shame. And in that first sin and in that first sacrifice in the garden, what we see is the prototype for the biblical plan of salvation. God creates us in his image. He loves us. We respond to his life-giving love, not with the worship we should respond with, but with sinning, with the breaking of his law. And because God is just, that sin must be punished. And in his great love, God had another die in the place of the sinner. And then he covered their sin in shame. And while Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, they were not removed from God's care. They were still his people by his grace. You go further into the Old Testament and God establishes the sacrificial system. He codifies that, that pattern that we see in Genesis 3. And he puts it in the law. The people were still breaking God's commandments. The people were still separated from God, but they could approach him by the blood of a substitute, a worthy substitute. Therefore, they would make sacrifice according to his instruction. Here's a quote from Nancy Guthrie. She says, When you slit that animal's throat and watch it burn, and the priest declared your sin forgiven, imagine the sense of relief you felt. You would think, it should be me. I am the one who deserves to die, but this innocent animal has become my substitute. This animal has died so I can live. This was good news. Now, the blood of the animals that were dying 
under the Old Testament sacrificial system, it had no power to save or to forgive sin in and of itself. That's the reality. But the same way that we repent of our sin and we look backward in faith to Jesus' death for sin, Old Testament saints performed the sacrifices and looked forward in faith to the blood that actually did have the power to redeem, the blood of the Messiah. They repented and they were forgiven because they did not trust in themselves. They trusted in God's plan of salvation and looked forward in faith. And now we have something better this morning in order to fix our sin problem with God. We do not need to slit the throat of an animal and watch it burn because the Lord gave us his own son. He provided a sacrifice whose blood did have the power to atone for our sin. Christ died. He was the one that all those Old Testament sacrifices, even even the the first death in the garden so that the skins could be prepared to be given to Adam and Eve for clothing, all those Old Testament sacrifices were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross. And when people repent of their sin and they put their trust in the Son of God, His only plan of salvation for humanity, by the way, then they are made right with God and they are justified and so I wanted to start with that trip through biblical history this morning because we have to understand from the outset with this text that there is only one way to be made right with God and it's through his plan of salvation his plan that was foreshadowed again and again throughout the history of redemption a plan that was made concrete in the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross on our behalf a plan that remains the only hope for the soul today the only hope for salvation today in chapter 17 Jesus talked about the kingdom last week he reminded us to pray persistently until the kingdom comes today he tells us the only way to be in the kingdom And he tells us through a story, uh, just as he did last week. We have another parable. This time it's a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. So let me read, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Father, help us to understand this passage this morning. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss what it is uh, saying to us, what you were saying to us through it. Uh, Father, I pray that if any of us have come in here this morning relying on our own righteousness, thinking we're good enough, we're good enough citizens, we're good enough fathers, we're good enough mothers, we're good enough um, uh, spouses, uh, we're good enough employees, we pay our taxes, we don't hit people, we don't commit crimes. And because of this, we don't really need to surrender our lives to you because at the end of our lives, you're going to look at our good works and say, it's good enough. Come on in. We know that's a lie from the pit of hell, Lord. It's a lie. 
Our own goodness is never going to get us into heaven. Our own goodness is never going to make us right with you. And I pray that this passage this morning, Lord, would convince us once and for all. We love you, Father, and we trust you to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing Luke does here is tell us who this parable is aimed at. And it's people who trusted in themselves. You see that in verse 9. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, meaning they were right with God on their own. They had a righteousness in themselves that made them uh, okay with God, that, that would appease God. And then they treated other people with contempt. Jesus makes it clear in his teaching, all throughout the book of Luke, all throughout Matthew, Mark, and, and John, that there's only two ways for you to live. That's it. I shared this this past Monday night with my 5th and 6th grade upward basketball team. We sat down, I told them the same thing. There's only two ways to live in the Bible. You trust in God's plan of salvation, or you try to take matters into your own hands with some form of man-made wisdom and man-made religion. And that's it. There, there is no gray area, there's no fence sitting to be done. You either trust in his plan of salvation that he has laid out for us in the scriptures, or you are toying around with man-made religion thinking that that is going to save you, that that is going to redeem your soul. All throughout his, his teaching, Jesus is telling us there's two gates. There's a narrow one, there's a wide one. There's two ways, a narrow one and a broad one. There's two ends to this life. It's destruction or it's more life. There's two kinds of trees that produce two kinds of fruits, good and bad. There's two foundations, rock or sand. There's two houses, it stands or it falls. Many in first century Israel were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in their own ability to be righteous. They were not on God's program for salvation, they were on their own. And a lot of this had to do with the Pharisees who ran the synagogue. They were the leaders of the faulty religious mindset that had become pervasive in Jesus' time. God requires perfect external obedience in our behavior to his law. And, if that's not enough, God requires perfect internal obedience in our thought life. And so we can never match up, right? Again and again, we find that we fall short of the law's demands, but the Pharisees and those that followed them actually believed they could match up and believed they did match up. They had concocted a legal system of salvation through good works and through religious rituals, and it was based on a hybrid, on a combination of Old Testament laws and man-made laws. So they, they took the law of the Old Testament and they took a bunch of man-made laws that rabbis had come up with in the three to four hundred years before Jesus and they meshed it together and they had this man-made system of salvation they were pushing on people. And if the false system of salvation wasn't bad enough, the fact that they felt they were adhering to the code they had created, they felt that made them better than everybody else. And that only multiplied the evil of the whole thing. They created a game of morality, they made the rules for the game, they rigged the game so they could win, and then anybody who couldn't play the game well enough, they treated them with hatred. The word contempt that Luke uses here in chapter 18 verse 9, it means to despise. It means you don't take account of someone. They are worthless to you. They have no value to you. It'd be like if you're walking down the street and, and you see like a, a, a dirty penny laying on the ground. You're like, I'm not stopping for that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm not going to stop and, and pick that thing up. It's, it's not worth my time. And that is how the Pharisees and those who followed them treated people who could not play their game of morality. They looked at them as worthless, as not worth their time. 
And so this parable is a warning to the Pharisees and to anybody that's jumped into company with them. It's a warning about what self-righteousness and man-made religion does to the heart and how it separates you even further from God and it keeps you out of the kingdom. Now we have two characters in the parable and what Jesus wants us to do is compare and contrast them. That's what we're supposed to do with this. So on one hand we have a Pharisee. He would be looked at as the most pious man in all of Jewish society. Would have been respected by the majority of the common people. Would have been viewed as a spiritual leader. The tax collector on the other hand is irreligious. He would have been despised by his own people because he made a living collecting taxes for Rome from the Jewish people. That's what the Romans always did. They would come in, conquer a territory, and then they would hire tax collectors from that people group and say, you collect taxes for your own people and you send us the, uh, the profits. And these tax collectors had a reputation for maybe taking more than they were supposed to and then pocketing some for themselves and then sending the rest off to Rome. And so they were looked at as corrupt. They were looked at the way that maybe somebody would look at like an old, an old mafia boss. You know what I mean? Like you stay away from those people. We don't like those people. They're corrupt. They're evil. And they, they just, they would write him off. He was an outcast. That's what the tax collector would be to his society. He would be an outcast. A wealthy outcast, but an outcast. So they're going to pray at the temple. It's probably after 3 p.m. because you could go and make prayer after the evening sacrifices. The Pharisee stands as he prays. Nothing wrong with that. In and of itself, nothing wrong with that. There are many acceptable postures of prayer in the Old Testament. We see brothers and sisters in the Old Testament stand, kneel, sit, bow, lie down on their face, pray with their hands up in the air, looking up, looking down. So lots of different acceptable postures for prayer in the Old Testament. Standing certainly one of them. That's acceptable. What's not acceptable is to stand and pray so that you would be noticed by other people. And Jesus says this in Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. By the way, just a a fun little application for us. Isn't social media our version of that? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Most of you are probably not going to go down in front of food line and stand there like this, hoping that everybody who walks in will go, look how religious they are. Because you know that most of them would walk by and go, what a nut. You know what I mean? So you're not going to go and do that. But man, we put it all over social media, don't we? We've got to make sure our motives are right. That was, that was free. That wasn't even in my notes. Let's keep going. The implication here is this guy is standing to be seen by others. He wants people to see him and say, oh, it's, you know, Pharisee so-and-so, look how religious he is, look how spiritual he is. And that's made clear by the fact that he's standing off by himself, he's, he's praying to himself. The ESV lets us down a little bit here. It translates verse 11 as, standing by himself prayed thus, okay? But the New American Standard Bible translates it like this. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, And the King James and New King James do the same. And what that tells us is the man is really not directing his prayer to God. He's congratulating his own soul on his supposed righteousness. He doesn't give any praise to the Lord. He doesn't ask the Lord for anything. He doesn't request mercy or grace. He just makes a bunch of arrogant statements where he's thanking God for not making him like other people. And he is just listing off his accomplishments. 
God, thank you I'm not like the extortioners. Thank you I'm not like the unjust. Thank you I'm not like the, the adulterers, the, the prostitutes, the, the people who are cheating on their, their spouses. And, and especially, Lord, thank you I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like him. And then he just kind of lays his spiritual resume out there, fasts twice a week, gives tithes off of everything that he gets. You know, he is... Uh, going above and beyond the requirements of the law, you have to say. Jewish people were really only required to fast once a year in prepa- uh, preparation for the Day of Atonement. Didn't, didn't have to fast more than that. The Pharisees, they're, they're fasting twice a week, usually on Mondays and Thursdays. He goes beyond the requirements of the law for, for giving and for tithing. He, he, he's tithing off everything he's got. Jesus famously criticized the Pharisees for saying, yeah, you tithe off everything you get. You even tithe off your spice rack, but you neglect mercy and justice. And so he's going above and beyond when it comes to uh, the law, and he's bragging about it. Just to give you an idea of how self-righteous Pharisee Judaism was in the first century, here is an actual prayer, a Pharisee prayer, written down and recorded from the time of Christ. I thank thee, Jehovah my God, that thou has assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit at street corners. For I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to study the words of the Torah. They rise early to attend things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and gain thereby while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come while they run toward the pit of destruction." That is the attitude of the Pharisee at the temple. On the other hand, you have this tax collector. Look at his posture. He's standing far off. He's aware of his unworthiness. He's not even going to try to draw too close. That's the first clue that he's a sinner in his own eyes. Uh, You also see in verse 13, he won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. So overwhelmed with his own guilt, so overcome with shame, he won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He's well aware of the fact that his sin has alienated him from God, won't even look up. And then look at the visible signs of grief that he has over his sin. It says he beats his breast and he cries out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, beating your breast, you know, pounding on your chest like that, that was not a standard way to show grief in Jewish culture. In fact, we only have one other instance of this in all of the scriptures, and it comes after Jesus' crucifixion. Luke 23, 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And Luke says they do this after the centurion present declares that Jesus was innocent. And so it's almost like some of them go home going, this just wasn't right. It wasn't right. And, and the beating on, on the chest is probably them saying something about the heart. And that's probably what's going on here at the tax sector. He's saying something about his heart. He's beating on his chest as if to say, man, this heart is evil. It keeps doing things it's not supposed to do that I don't want it to do. And it's not doing the things I want it to do. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's like by beating on his chest, the tax collector is agreeing with Jeremiah. Yes, this thing here, it is just the worst. It just keeps doing things that hurt the name of God and separate me from God. 
So he offers up this prayer then. He says that he's a sinner and he asks himself for God's mercy. When he says merciful, you see that there in verse 13, be merciful to me a sinner. That word merciful, the Greek word helaskomai is the word. It means to make propitiation or to make satisfaction. We only see it used in the New Testament one other time. So it's not the normal word for mercy. And when we see it, it's in Hebrews 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, helaskomai, for the sins of his people. So isn't it interesting that this Greek word translates to merciful in Luke 18, verse 13, but in Hebrews 2, 17, it translates to propitiation. And what we can gather from that is that this man is really asking God for two things. Number one, he's saying, please don't give me what I deserve. That's mercy. I deserve your punishment. I deserve your wrath. Please don't give me what I deserve. It's what we were just singing just a moment ago, right? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. I deserve hell. Please don't give me that. But more than that, he's asking not just to not get what he deserves, he's asking for appeasement to be made. He's saying, I'm a sinner. Please don't give me what I deserve, and please allow somebody else to be punished for my sin so that it won't be me. Make propitiation in another way. Satisfy your wrath, O Lord, in another way. Because he knows if there is sin, there must be death. If there is sin against God, that sin must be punished. And so, when he says, be merciful to me, a sinner, here in verse 13, what he's crying out for is not just mercy, but a Savior. Someone who will die in his place. Someone who will atone. Now, as we look at verse 14, let me set it up this way. If you know anybody who enjoys the sweet science of boxing. Like, I I will take a great boxing match over a great MMA match any day of the week, all right? And that might offend you, I don't know. But uh, I I just, MMA, it's sometimes a little too brutal for me, if I'm being honest. Like, I just, I love watching you guys put on the gloves and and, and do it. it. It's a bit more classy, it feels like, I don't know. So, the sweet science, you know, anybody who watches it, they'll tell you the deadliest punch probably in the history of boxing is George Foreman's short right. And what he would do is set you up all throughout the fight for it. He wouldn't use it. He'd set you up. And the other fighter knows it's coming at some point. But he'd set you up and he'd set you up. And then finally, boom, short right. And he would just turn people's lights out. I mean, just knocking guys out left and right. That's how Jesus told his parables. The way that George Foreman boxed is the way Jesus told his parables. He would set the audience up. And set him up and set him up. And then usually at the end of the parable, boom, short right. And you're just like, you know, turns the lights off. It knocks you out. You're like, it did not see that coming. Leave them reeling. And so the short right in this passage is the beginning of verse 14. Who goes home justified? This man, meaning the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee. The tax collector. 
Not the religious man. Not the man who is the moral mascot for his entire society. Not the man who was so proud he's not like the rest of the riffraff around him. Instead, it's the tax-collecting outcast. The man who wouldn't even look up to heaven. The man who pleaded with God for an atoning substitute. The man who beat his breast over the evil of his own heart. He's the one who goes home justified. And that would have turned the lights out for the audience. Knocked them back. In terms of their expectations, at least, their expectation just got knocked out by Jesus. How is it that the tax collector is the one that goes home justified? Well, to understand it, we've got to know what that word even means. To be justified is to be rendered righteous. Some people have remembered it throughout the years, you know, justified just as if I had never sinned, right? You're justified, you are declared righteous, you are cleared of guilt. And it's not just in the moment. The word justified here in verse 14 is a perfect passive participle in the Greek. We're not going to get into all that. All you need to know is that means it's permanent. It's not just you're justified and you need to come back tomorrow to be justified again. It is you are justified today and you're going to be justified tomorrow and you're going to be justified for a thousand tomorrows, for an eternity worth of tomorrows. Permanently made righteous. And so we are back to the question we started with this morning. How can someone be made right with God? There's a world, there must be a world maker. How are we made right with Him? How can we be declared righteous before Him? Well, this tax collector is not made right with God because of any merit that he possesses. It's not because of his own worthiness or anything that he has accomplished spiritually on his own. It's not because of any good works that he has conjured up that has caused the Lord to overlook his sin. He was made right because he put his faith in God for mercy and propitiation. He put his faith in God to not give him the wrath he deserved for sin, and he believed in the Lord's ability to save him and to reconcile him to himself. The Pharisee, on the other hand, and those like him, did not put their faith in God. They put their faith in their own ability to please God, their own ability to please him through good works and through law-keeping. And the problem with that is that your good works are nothing more than filthy rags before the Lord. And let me explain to you why that is the case. We say that a lot because the Scriptures tell us that. But theologically and logically, here is is why that's the case. If you are a sinner who has not been redeemed by God, you are trapped in your sin nature. Okay, I always use this illustration to say, when Willie gets freed, all right, you ever seen Free Willie? When the whale goes free, he cannot move to Idaho and become a potato farmer. That's not an option for him. And I know that's silly, but like he was only free within his nature. He could go do all the whale things he wanted to do, but he's still confined to doing whale things because he's only free within his nature. So you and I, before Jesus does something in our life, when we are sinners separated from God, when we are not converted, when we are unbelievers... We are only free within our sin nature. Meaning, everything you're going to do springs from a foundation of sin. So even the good works you try to conjure up to save yourself are rooted in all sorts of pride. And you see the results. This guy thinks, well, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm righteous on my own because I do all this stuff. 
And as he declares his unrighteousness, what is becoming evident? He's a prideful man. Why would you not be prideful? It's your spiritual resume that's getting you into heaven, right? It's your good works that's getting you into heaven. So the reality is, is that the more we try to offer up these good works to God that are rooted in our own prideful sinfulness, we just become more prideful. And the Bible says that God resists the proud. Which means that the more good works we try to offer up to God on our own, the further we just get from Him. The more lost we become, the more broken we become, the more separated we become, the chasm just grows. The good news is that the Bible tells us he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. People like the tax collector who humble themselves and, and confess their need to God and say, I can't do anything to save myself. Anything I try to offer up to you, it is rooted in my pride, my selfishness, my evil. I know that. So I'm not going to try to offer that stuff up to you. I will not insult you with my own good works. I've got nothing to offer you. But I believe you can save. I believe that you can be merciful and that you are merciful. And I'm asking you to save me. And I'm putting my faith in your plan of salvation. When we humble ourselves like this, God does not resist us. He draws near to us. And He saves us. In the parable, the man does not trust in Christ because Christ has not died yet. This is an Old Testament pre-crucifixion conversion here. He's looking forward in faith, trusting God will make good on His word to save His people through a suffering Messiah. But the bottom line is, he believes. And listen, in every age of the history of God's people, we can talk about Abraham's generation, we could talk about Isaiah's generation, we could talk about John the Baptist's generation, Martin Luther's generation, and we can talk about our generation. The reality is, is that in every age of the history of God's people, the only way people are made right with God is through faith. And that's it. It is by believing. Listen to Romans 4 when Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he believed God, and he was justified by faith. He couldn't take credit for it. His only boast could be in the one who forgave him. And nothing has changed in the New Testament except that we don't look forward to the Messiah to come. We look back in faith to the Messiah who came. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us as New Testament saints, and we now have a privilege Old Testament saints did not have. We know the name of the suffering servant. We can look back in faith and we put our trust in him. The law led us there, right? Galatians 3.24 the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was like a teacher. It showed us again and again, I need Jesus. I need Christ. I need a Messiah. I need a Savior. But Christ has now come, and so the law has led us to a point where we go, I've got to put my faith in Him. I cannot save myself. And as we repent and put our faith in Him, we are justified. Just like the man in this passage. The reformers called this sola fide, which means by faith alone. It's the heartbeat of the gospel. Faith is the tool that we use to grab onto Christ. 
I want to say that again. Faith is the tool we use to grab onto Christ. When that happens, God gives us the righteousness of Christ because on the cross, He got our sin. If you try to stand on your own before God, you'll stand without Christ. You will not be justified no matter how many good works you think you have. They are filthy rags before Him. Your lostness will condemn you. Trust in yourself. You will stand by yourself. But if you stand with Christ by faith, you are clothed in His righteousness and you stand before His throne justified. And this is why there's only one way to God. We, we don't talk in exclusive language just for the sake of it. Oh, we're right and everybody else is wrong. No. We talk in exclusive language when we say Jesus is the only way to God because literally there is no other way to God. There's nobody else who can justify you. Only one lived a perfect life and died an atoning death for you. Therefore, Christ is the only way a person can be made right with their Creator. He's the only way to be justified. And Jesus gives us a statement at the end of this parable. It's a truism. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And you see that play out in the parable. The Pharisee exalted himself. He put himself above others. He put his spiritual resume out there. And so he exalted himself, but he will be humbled when he stands before God at the end of his life and he finds out that all of his good works that he's relying on for salvation are nothing more than polluted garments before God's holy and righteous presence. The tax collector humbles himself, won't even look up to heaven, stands far off, beats his chest, cries out for mercy. He humbles himself, but one day he will stand before the Lord and the Lord will say, no need to beat your chest, son. Come in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Your faith has justified you. Come into my kingdom. And he will be exalted. I want to close with this. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet issues this diagnosis of spiritual, uh, the spiritual health of Israel. It's not good. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what Jeremiah is saying is the people left the Lord, and if, as if that's not bad enough, they then traded him in, the fountain of living water, for cisterns that can't hold water. A cistern is a tank for holding water. So if it can't hold water, it's, it's not doing the thing it's made for. It's, it's useless. So Israel traded in the never-ending fountain of life for useless, broken tanks of death. That's what Jeremiah is telling them. Everybody in this room has committed the first evil that Jeremiah mentions in chapter 2, verse 13. We've all forsaken the Lord. We're born forsaking the Lord. The question is, what's your next move? If your move is to try your hand at man-made religions of good works, then you're opting for a broken cistern, a broken tank, and it will leak and leak and leave you empty and guilty and condemned for all of eternity. But if your move is to trust in the gospel of God's grace, then you will drink from his fountain of living water. 
By faith you will be made right with God, you will be justified, you will have the righteousness of Christ, and your first evil, the evil of forsaking the Lord, will be completely and totally covered and forgiven. So don't be like the Pharisee in this passage. He compounded his evil by trying to be good on his own, by trying to trust in himself, by putting his faith in his own morality, and his evil just multiplied. we got to be like the tax collector who understood his sin, He did not compound his evil by choosing broken cisterns. He believed in the mercy of God. He believed in the atonement of a coming Savior. And he went home justified. Will you go home justified today? Let's pray. Father God, it's so tempting to want to trust in ourselves, to want to try to fix our own problems especially for the type of people who try to fix everybody else's problems all the time. We're really going to be tempted to try to fix our own problems. Or, on the other hand, Lord, maybe we have folks here this morning just trying to ignore their own sin, just trying to act like it doesn't exist. We can't do do either one, Lord. We, We can't fix ourselves. We can't ignore the fact that we need fixing. Lord, I pray that people would humble themselves this morning, They would not wait to be humbled on Judgment Day. They would humble themselves now that they may be exalted, enter into your kingdom one day. Enter into your kingdom now and then enter into the visible, physical kingdom later. So, Father, I just pray that the word would be saturating the hearts of those who have heard it this morning. For those of us who are already believers in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would uh, repent of trying to rely on our own righteousness from time to time, our own good works. We would be reminded that it is faith alone this morning and that we would be rejoicing in that, that it's not down to us. But for others, Lord, who maybe don't know you and have just continuously been trying to find salvation in their own good works, in their own religious rituals, in man-made religion, I pray this morning they've come to see the truth of what their good works are. It's filthy rags rooted in pride, and they would repent, and they would find salvation in you, that they would be justified because they humble themselves. So, Father, may the gospel be heard and believed this morning uh, by your grace, Lord. Be merciful to us, sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.